This one is of me and Jason down by the beach in Furness, Scotland. And here's Jason leading the pep rally at Rydell High. Go Rydell Rangers. Oh, and here's me in a red bandolier and diaper threatening a whole bunch of people with a gun. I don't quite understand why, but um, Jason, white water rafting blindfolded. Jason on the Staten Island Ferry. Jason eating meatball subs in Santa Monica. Eating pizza. Fishing with dynamite. Forging literary ephemera. Playing guitar at an awards show and me apologizing to the crowd for what happened while he was playing guitar on an awards show. Anyway, it was a lot of fun, and we're both tanned, rested, and ready to get back to the full cast and crew grind with... Vacation! <laughs> back to work with Vacation. Vacation, all I ever wanted, Chris, as a great American poet once said. National Lampoon's Vacation, Chevy Chase. Who else is in the movie? I think that's it. Just nope. Chevy. <laughs> Just Chevy. It's his one-person show. If you listen show. to Chevy... <laughs> Do you know this? I know you're not an Avengers fan. You know, Gwyneth Paltrow was in the yes. Avengers movie. And the fact that she doesn't know anybody else. Who, I saw that. <laughs> I think Chevy Chase is like that just in real life. But you know what? When I saw that story, and the story is, I guess, someone asked, I don't, how did it come up? Do you remember? I think at a premiere for something. They were together. That, with Sebastian Stan, who's somebody else in this, again, the, the newest uh, Avengers. To be fair. 600. And then some intrepid reporter was like, and Gwyneth, of course, you know Sebastian. And she was like, oh, no, nice to meet yeah. you. And he's like, yeah, we were in four <laughs> movies together. They probably did not share any scenes. Now, I read something that was kind of spot on about this movie, written by John Hughes, directed by Harold Ramis. This was in kind of like a reappreciation of it that came out in Vanity Fair. And it was something to the effect of like, it's one of those movies that you may not have seen in 10 years, but it's there in your consciousness. Yeah. I hadn't seen this movie in many, many years. I was pleasantly surprised how well it held up. Uh -huh. And I'm going to have a hot take. Uh, Matt, give me a, I need a hot take sound effect for my unsupported opinions. Jason's hot takes. Here's my hot take. Ready? Now. After I make my hot take, I'm going to have to go back over the next few weeks and do the actual research to see if it backs up. But I'm pretty sure that what I'm about to say is true. I think this is the greatest Chevy Chase movie that he ever made. I don't think there's another movie that holds up as well. I'm talking about movies where he is the star. Sure, sure, sure. So Caddyshack doesn't count in that math, okay. even though that's a classic comedy, because I think that's a supporting role. Okay. But in movies where he's the star, all these vacation spinoff movies, Fletch. Well, I will give a, a lukewarm take, because I made the, I don't know if it was a mistake or not, of doing a lot of the research yesterday mm. before watching. Interesting approach. Reading about him, looking at his IMDb page. Well, I did that. Thinking. I did that. You know, thinking. Not, and also I didn't just make this up. <laughs> I mean, I looked Sorry, at the I guess IMDb. That's not, that's not no, I looked at the IMDb page and I tried to say, like, what are the other great Chevy Chase lead performances? And I guess movies? I meant, like, I went into watching the movie with that in mind. And I agree. Part of it is, you know, he was never asked to do as much acting again. Mm. He is, I had forgotten how funny he is. Unbelievable. And this is an actual character as opposed to just playing himself. Never met the man, but I think I can go out and this limb. Even Caddyshack, that character plays to those strengths. Yes. But what's great about this is he's he's just like a dud dad. And the convergence of the well-meaningness of the character and his lack of well-meaningness as a person and his just brilliant, dry comic timing. I think you hit the nail on the head. The crucial flaw in many other Chevy Chase lead performances is that the whole movie is always constructed around 
his character being the smartest person in the whole movie. Yeah. And it, then that plays up the mean-spirited comedy, which still, in, in a lot of these other movies, his physical comedy is unparalleled in the 80s, 90s, or 2000s. Yeah. I think you'd have to go back to legends of silent film comedy. You'd have to go back to Charlie Chaplin. That's how good he is. Unbelievable. I just watched a clip before you came in, and I noticed yet another brilliant physical thing, which was... There's a handshake that he gives Eugene Levy's car salesman character, and they shake hands with each other, and they both have the most milquetoast, limp handshakes. They actually don't even, like, grip hands. They do this. And it's such a little subtle thing. Yeah. And in the making of Doc that I shared with you, a lot of the people say much of the time on the movie was spent with them coming up with little stuff like that. So... There are some early Chevy Chase movies I want to actually watch because I'm kind of interested in them. Yes. I haven't seen Foul Play. That sounds like something that could potentially be good. Goldie Hawn, Chevy Chase, Burgess Meredith. Like Escape from Witch Mountain, I remember growing up catching bits of Foul Play on TV and they're you know, spoiler for 1979's mm -hmm. Foul Play, they're being pursued by these two hitmen, one of whom is a little person and one of whom is mm -hmm. an albino. Yeah. And, you know, as a kid, it was such a surreal image and, and the strangeness of that made it look terrifying to me. So I think I would love to watch that. I would also like to watch 1980s Oh Heavenly Dog. <laughs> I did sure look through this. I was like, Charles you know, Grodin. Jane Seymour? Benji? Like Benji Benji? Dog is in the title. Literally starring Benji. Seems like old times. The Neil Simon adaptation, mm -hmm. which stars Chevy and Goldie Hawn, Charles Grodin. There's some good movies around here in the 1980, 82. These are yeah. kind of around Caddyshack, which is 1980. After you get past Fletch, and I really love the first Fletch. I watched a little of Fletch Lives, and I was like, yikes. It's, it's sort of some cringeworthy, embarrassing storylines in that one. The first Fletch is good, but it does suffer from a little bit of what you were referencing, which is like when he's the smartest guy in the movie— the character takes on some of those proportions. But yes, the saving grace in Vacation is that I think Chevy having to play the schlub, yeah. the dad who isn't the smartest one in his own family, critically. That's like the most critically yeah. important thing. Beverly Jangelo's character is smarter than him. The very first scene of the movie, he's cheated by... Eugene Levy's car salesman. Is it because he's just dumb? Is it because he doesn't want to lose face or status? Is it because he's so excited about taking the trip that he's sort of cutting his losses? Um, whatever it is, or, or, you know, could be all of those things. Could but be all yes, of those it, things. You feel some sympathy for him, yeah. even when he's being a jerk. Okay, let's play a little of this first great scene, which is Chevy and Anthony Michael Hall as Rusty getting ready to pick up their brand new car for their exciting cross-country road trip to Wally World. And Eugene Levy plays a car salesman about to totally rip Chevy off. Hi there, Ed. Good to see you, Mr. Griswold. How you doing? Ruben, right? Rusty. Yeah? Uh, okay. Look at him. He can't wait. So, did you bring a train in? Yeah. Guy just took it away a couple of seconds ago. Well, let's get to it then. Okay. We were kind of afraid the new one wouldn't come in yet. Uh, we were... On our way to California in the morning, the big vacation, the whole family, Wally World. Wally World, very exciting one. Clark. Well, there she is. Where? Right here, the wagon. Dad, this is not the car you ordered. Take it easy, Rusty. Ed, uh, this is not the car I ordered. I distinctly ordered the uh, Antarctic Blue Super Sports Wagon with the CB and the optional Rally Fun Pack. You didn't order the uh, Metallic P? Metallic P? No, Antarctic Blue. The sports wagon. This isn't even the right model. You know, I think you're right. I don't think this is the car. This is the new wagon queen family truckster. This is a 
This is a damn fine automobile, if you want my honest opinion, beats the hell out of the sports wagon, but I want to make you happy, huh? Davenport! I'll get to the bottom of this. Yes, Mr. Ed. Mr. Griswold ordered a blue sports wagon. Where is it? I don't know, sir. I know what must have happened. It didn't come in. Ed, I'm not your ordinary, everyday fool, okay? Now, I'd like my Antarctic Blue Super Sports Wagon right now, and if you can't get it for me, I'm going to take my business elsewhere. Where's my old car? And then the car is shown with forklifts going through the windows. Right. Yeah, Chevy's performance in this is phenomenal. It's everything that makes him great as a comedian, and he gets to do so much stuff. Without, like, in Fletch, there's a lot of costumes, there's a lot of beards, yeah. there's a lot of disguises and all that kind of stuff, and some of that is funny and, and helps play into the characters, but I want to watch this again for the subtlety. You saw the handshake right there. Yeah. Even when he's just nodding his head like a moron at the end. He's so good. The character, what's great about it, not only does it cut the smarminess or his self-importance, but it makes him sympathetic. One thing that he does throughout the whole movie is he thinks he knows what he's talking about. Yes. He thinks he's high status and he will take what other people say. And yes. <laughs> you see it in that scene where Rusty's he's like, hey, easy, Russ. And then he literally repeats what Rusty says. And then later he ends up repeating a lot of stuff that Eugene Levy says to his wife when he finally gets back with this monstrosity. The great line, he's like, you think you hate it now, <laughs> but wait till you drive it. And the car is just brilliantly knocking and refuses to stop running in the driveway, his brand new car. The other great saving grace about National Lampoon's vacation is the Lampoon spirit is still strong in the darkly cynical take about American suburban family yeah. life. It hasn't yet turned the corner as a brand as it would in later films. And it's still impressive to think that this was allowed to get onto the screen. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason it probably was was because it feels more warm and cuddly than it really is. Oh, yeah. Like, you could look at it on the surface and just be like, it's a great road trip movie, which it is. But I mean, it doesn't pull very many punches about its characters and about the thing that it's sending up. And it really reminds me of the best parts of early day National Lampoon stuff, which the DNA of this still sort yeah. of maintains. And were you a regular reader of the magazine? I mean, I was too young in the late 70s and 80s to really be paying attention to the magazine then. Later in my teenage years, when I started getting into things like Monty Python and right. And early David Letterman, yes, you go back to that stuff right. and you get the magazines and you read through them in the same way that you would read Mad Magazine cover to cover in the era. Yeah. Actually, as a company, we flirted a little bit with trying to help get the brand sort of revitalized maybe seven or eight years ago uh -huh. from the current rights holders of the Lampoon brand because like Mad Magazine, which I guess unceremoniously announced its ceasing publication a couple of weeks ago, yeah. you know, the Lampoon in recent years hasn't had the position in the culture that it had then. Totally. I was surprised and I did not know that John Hughes wrote the script for National Lampoon's Vacation. And then when I heard that, I assumed, even through watching the movie, well, sure, he may have written some John Hughes-esque, touchy-feely family vacation movie, but someone else, Chevy Chase, Harold Ramis, Harold Ramis, like someone else put all this acid in there. But as we were talking about yesterday, when Hollywood Reporter had reprinted John Hughes's original 1979 story that he wrote, it's all in there. Called Vacation 58. It's all in there. 
I mean, in fact, it's even darker. Oh, yeah. Clark Griswold shoots. Did he shoot and kill Walt Disney and he goes what? to prison? I don't think he kills him, but I think he shoots him in the leg. And he ends up in jail. Uh, which is similar to the uh, original ending of the film. To go back to the acid tongue that the mm-hmm. film has, I think part of it comes from the original story of Vacation 58. We're not too far away from whatever one might say in a, of the golden mm-hmm. age of the promise sure. of American. I mean, the stuff Trump wants us to get back to making great again. Yeah, that stuff. That's stuff like that. But like the post-war. Yeah. The, the elements suburban of optimism, ideal. suburban ideal, as well as consumerism, yes. which still seemed like it could be good. And this is yep. coming at a time where it's just far enough away. So there's still a little bit of, I guess, sweetness or some amount of fondness yep. so that the acidity isn't overwhelming and, not, and it's not so dark. It's on a knife edge there. It's similar it to Greece well. almost in that way, because Greece itself, as we talked talked about when it came out was looking back at 50s greaser culture from the perspective of really the late 60s yeah. and saying, gee, wasn't it simpler and easier then in its own way, even as it was fucked up? And I think this too sends up a lot of suburban American family stuff, white suburban American yes. family stuff. And that to me is the saving grace and that makes the movie a comedy classic. Without that stuff, you have just a lesser 1980s Chevy Chase vehicle. Mm-hmm. Since that's always reasonably entertaining, you it's can, get, ca- away you can get away with it. Not to digress too early into Chevy and the recent controversies. It's amazing, A, the length of the career. Yeah. In the last 10 years, I would say he's probably better known for controversies, leaving the voicemail for Dan Harmon, whom he fought quite a bit when he was Pierce Hawthorne on Community. New Yorker profile of Donald Glover featured some unflattering reminiscences of Chevy supposedly trying to interrupt Donald Glover's process on the set. Hmm. But then it also, I think, included some of Chevy's supporters or Chevy's take that like, well, my character is supposed to be sort of this bumbling, inadvertently racist old white guy. And so some of that dynamic can bleed through. I always get the sense with Chevy that some people love him and a lot of people hate him. I'm talking about people that have worked with him. Yeah. One thing I think is absolutely true, not knowing the truth of any of these controversies. You can hear the voicemail he left Dan Harmon if you want to look for it. The backstory is that at the rap party, they'd had a tough season and Chevy was fighting for his character's comedy and felt that he was always being edited and that all the stuff that Chevy does Mm -hmm. was being cut out. And he was basically just being rendered into a fairly limp and inert sitcom performance. And some of that may be true. Dan Harmon subsequently is kind of like, yeah, I was a little out of my mind then. And maybe I wasn't quite as attentive to stuff as I could have been. Whatever the truth of it is, at the rap party, Dan Harmon famously led the entire room which included Chevy, his wife, and one of Chevy's daughters in a fuck you Chevy chant, meaning to be funny. Chevy got very offended. And when he got home that night, he called and left Dan Harmon the famous voicemail. And in it, he basically says, do you, you know, you think that's funny to do that in front of my, my wife and my daughter? It just rips Dan Harmon. Yeah. You know, you're not funny. You're okay. Like in the most damning thing, even Dan Harmon says, the most damning thing that he said, the arrow in my heart was when he goes, you're not funny. You're okay. Which I think ironically had been levied at Chevy. Oh, really? um, (laughs) uh, By, I think Bill Murray and Chevy had a famous fight backstage back in the day at SNL. And I think Bill Murray leveled that accusation at Chevy. Wow. You're a billion of you I've worked with before. You're not funny. You're okay. But 
My point is, there's context that makes it somewhat understandable to be pissed off, even though Chevy's own behavior on the set is acknowledged to be difficult. Now, is it in pursuit of comedy? Because he's done some interesting things. I got the feeling, looking at the last 10 years of his IMDb page, that he's kind of willing to pursue the comedy wherever it may end up taking him. When you're Chevy Chase and you do Chevy Chase things, it's probably very hard to find places to do that stuff. Um, and, you know, famously had many failed TV series, did a lot of voice work, has appeared in a bunch of things that are probably beneath him. Looking at his IMDb page, that's to me what jumps out. I'm sure the people involved in Shelby, this thing about a dog, a family comedy about it, I'm sure it's perfectly nice, but... Mm -hmm. But why? And it doesn't look like it has room for his acid, yeah. cynical take. Yet, is he finding a subversive way to weave it in there for better force? Or Probably. is it because that's just the only kind of job he can get? Probably both. Who knows? Acting is a cruel profession. And I think as you age, yeah. whether you're a man, certainly if you're a woman, but even if you're a man in the business, you know, how many of these roles are grandpa? And that's what happens when you're in your late 60s, early 70s. But I do think you could look at his IMDb page and say that for better or for worse, Here's a guy who is in pursuit of where the laughs are and is willing to go there, mm -hmm. put himself in stuff in order to try and find it. But of course, the iconic Chevy Chase stuff going back to the early National Lampoon stuff, the Lemmings, the SNL, he was probably best suited for a firing on all cylinders, live television entity like SNL. That, right. That's a great use of Chevy's presence and energy. Actually, also last night, ended up watching the last half of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Uh -huh. Another John Hughes movie with a very different take and a much sweeter take right. on the genre of the road picture. And it was a really good comparison because, while well, that's a hilarious movie. And John Candy is forever in that movie. I mean, talk about visual, facial, and physical brilliance. Like, wow, John Candy was so fucking good and so heartbreaking. That's John Hughes, too. He wrote this movie, and he wrote that movie. What year was Planes, Trains, and Automobiles? Good question. I'm going to say 84? So not too far. No, it's 87. Eh, and this is what, 80? This is 83, 83 it came out, yeah. so he wrote. Yeah. The reason why I think of that is, you know, it's interesting that it would become, like you said, it's similar ground and yet a little bit sweeter and a little bit, let's say, kinder to yes. the older generation, reading about Vacation, yeah. they were saying that Chevy and Harold Ramis did quite a bit of rewriting, right. shifting the focus from the teens, yes. as the original story yes. is from the point of view. Yeah. And first of all, just to stop down on, his prose is really good. And I don't find prose funny very often. You mean in, in the general. Original, and in the original, original story, yes, yes, I, like, I thought it really very laugh good. out loud. Just excellent writer. So they adapted this story into this movie. He wrote a screenplay, but again, still focusing on the teenagers. And the idea to flip it around and put it on the parents, if it were focused on the teenagers, it would be just another entry in John Hughes's oeuvre. Yes. And everybody would talk about how his real genius is observing a pretty small slice of teenage life in terms of class, race, and stuff like that. <laughs> He's got a pretty narrow focus. Yes. And yet, you know, he does find something close to universal in a lot of that, and he is excellent at it. But um, then he grows up a few years later, Had probably had a kid of his own. He goes from being more of a child to being more of an adult, and that will change your, your perspective. You, you mean know, John Hughes? John Hughes, yeah. I would think. And like, um, you know, King of the Hill, Mm -hmm. uh, Mike Judge, I remember yeah. hearing him being interviewed and he was talking about he did office space at, at a certain point where he was used to being like, screw you to the yeah. bosses. That were, and then a few years later, he made Extract, which was from yes. the point of view of management. Uh, yes. Again, it was not as Chris, good. trust me, been there, 
know the territory well. But if you're lucky, you do go from one to the other to get yes. both sides. And the kids are great too. This is another thing I think about vacation. Usually when you have kids in movies, it's pretty bad. And I mean, the opportunity to have somebody who has the acting ability and the comedic timing of someone like a young Lindsay Lohan is incredibly rare. They don't yes. just grow on trees. Most kids in movies don't fit the bill. They're just not good enough actors. And when you have Imogene Coca, Beverly D'Angelo, Chevy Chase, those are your scene partners for 90% of the movie. You better be able to hang there. Yes. And both of these two original kids are able to hang. And it's crazy they replaced both of them because I guess Anthony Michael Hall opted to do Weird Science instead of the sequel. And when he didn't want to do the sequel, they were like, okay, we'll just recast both kids. Yeah. Because I guess they thought it would be less weird to recast two than to have a new Rusty and an old, uh, whatever Audrey. her name is, Audrey. Yeah, you're like Chevy Chase himself. Like, uh, <laughs> it's great to be with you, Russ. And uh... <laughs> First, I didn't want to take this vacation. But now I'm glad I did. It's given me a chance to spend a lot more time with you and... Uh, uh, Audrey. Audrey, yeah. In the making of documentary, when speaking to, no, excuse me, I'm sorry, I take it back. I did end up reading this oral history of Christmas Vacation mm -hmm. just to get sure. some anecdotes or context. And they were talking to Juliette Lewis. She becomes the third. Oh, she does? I yeah. didn't know. She's the third Audrey? And yeah. Johnny Galecki is, I knew that. is the son. But they were saying that by that third one, that has become the bit, that they're going to just sure. cast different ones each time. Sure. Which I have to admit, I didn't, it into I a, didn't sure. think of that until just yesterday. I think that's Rusty pretty funny. Changed. You must have lines like that. I thought Dana Barron was great as Audrey. Yes. Anthony Michael Hall is so weird to watch talk. Because he's so funny and light on screen. And then when you talk to him, in a, he's in a documentary. He's so non-verbal yeah. and hulking. Right. He's like such a menacing presence. And then you look at this like braces clad kid in, you know, the breakfast club. Yeah. Like how do these two coexist? I wonder if one's like a response. He's like, oh my gosh, I'm so do not want to stay the nerdy braces kid that he made his career on that he got jacked. When Marty Simmons, the head of the National Lampoon at the time they're making this movie, and Harold Ramis, you know, saw 50 kids to play Rusty and none of them could do it. And then Anthony Michael Hall came in famously to the audition room and just did it. And he was yeah. like, this kid is an incredible actor, but he's just being himself. And they were like, you've got the part. The only caveat is you need to keep the braces. <laughs> And he was like, oh man, I was a teenager and I was so close to getting them off and then I had to leave the braces on. You referenced the first ending, which involved them going to Roy Wally's home, taking him hostage at gunpoint and making him perform for them. Yes. That just did not work in a test screening. They had to reshoot a new ending, which is the one you see in the movie where they go to the theme park and they have photos on the set. It's hilarious. Anthony Michael Hall grew probably eight inches yeah. in the several months that that took. And he's actually a head taller than he was in just the scene previously. I had forgotten that he was on SNL for a year and that he was the youngest ever cast member. Was he? He was 17 when he wow. was. Wow. I think anybody in our uh, age cohort, like, he is so recognizable as mm -hmm. a certain teen archetype. Yes. That it, yeah, he it, was an 80s archetype. And yet he tried to get away from that at some point. He turned down a role in Pretty in Pink. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, would he have been Ducky, do you think? Or Blaine? That to me seems like it would have been so far from the type that he was playing that maybe, but uh, who knows? I was just, that and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I doubt oh, he, he was been, up for Ferris. You don't think? If he had turned that down, wow. I want to see who he was. Yeah, John Cryer. He was going to play Ducky. Um, Does it say uh, for Ferris Bueller what he would have played? 
Anthony Michael Hall is convinced Hughes wrote the part of Ferris for him and that a falling out between the two affected that. Huh. Despite Hughes saying that Matthew Broderick was his first choice for the role. So maybe that had to do with, I'm going to assume Pretty in Pink was before Ferris Bueller's Day Off? I think so too. I think Anthony Michael Hall's had a little trouble recently. He got some police trouble. Oh, really? Well, he... He had some physical altercations. I think he recently, a few years ago, he had some other additional problems. Um, but he managed to do a very tricky turn, which is to go from that braces, pimply, horny teenage archetype to this interestingly interior, heavy present. To counteract that weird turn, let's just have a little of one of my favorite throwaway scenes, which is Chevy singing in the car. Maybe the only Paul Robeson shout out in comedy in the 1980s. It went over everybody's heads. That's how subversive it was. Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home. Swing low, chariot. I looked over Jordan and what did I see? Coming for to carry me home. Band of angels. What smells in here? Hey, Russ, Russ, your feet. I could watch that kind of stuff from him all yeah. day long because it's it's his eyes. It's what he's doing with his fingers. It's how he bungles the words. When you watch interviews with Chevy, he's always doing a bit. There are moments where he talks honestly and openly, but universally, if you ever read a print interview with Chevy Chase, he gets into trouble because the bits don't translate into print. And it just comes across like he's a dick, which... Perhaps he is, but when you watch him do it, you understand what's going yes, on. Yes, right. Whether you like it, don't like and, it. And I've read so many interviews over the last couple of days that don't get that it's a bit. But he's just a fascinatingly weird, singular, comedic presence that I don't think we have another one like that. I mean, if the ones that come about that were so lauded to be rubbery physical comedians of that type didn't really have the subtle intellectual sarcasm and sardonic thing that Chevy always has going on. And I think he, of Jim Carrey, for example. Well, I was say, and he sort of borders on and to He's a certain subversive. extent being a, a leading man as well. And he does. So there was something I think about you yeah. know, when you think of most comedians, like you said, whether rubber face or something, <laughs> yeah. again, I'm sure. Jim Carrey's a handsome guy in his own way, yeah. but it was it was a goofy cartoon yeah. character look as opposed to Chevy, who yeah. everybody describes as being sort of suave and sophisticated yes. and, and that kind of... And I think that's also a kind of uh, humor that's fallen out of favor a little yes. bit. Like, that's part of it, too, that there's yes. no one of that like. Um, but you could also see, again, he might be a case study where having those two things meet don't quite lead to the best outcomes in terms of a personality. Because to be as high status as you have to think you are in order mm -hmm. to balance all of those things, it's yes. like you're you're running on this kind of poison, which can't help but make your make your life difficult. I think it's a good point. And he gets painted a lot as a rich kid, grew up in privilege in New York City. But Chevy's talked a lot about there's some, what he alludes to in a lot of interviews as some abuse that took place in his childhood. Doesn't really specify what type, but he says in a couple interviews, something to do with his mother and his stepfather. Mm -hmm. And he won't get into that because he says, oh, I've got living brothers and sisters and it's not appropriate for me to sort of get into what my take on it was. So I think Chevy has that thing that a lot of comedians have, the stereotype of like the darkness. Mm -hmm. But he also has that patrician part of him, that leading man part of him comes from being in that. I wanted to say milieu, but now I'm gun shy <laughs> about using any French oriented words because all the great comics, what do comics do? They observe and then deliver it back to us in a way that 
tips us off to the thing that they're pointing the finger at. You know, you had just played that clip of, of Chevy singing. Uh, something that struck me is the scene before that where both he and, and Beverly, Beverly Dancer are singing for that one. together. Yes. What's great is now, you know, I didn't realize this, uh, that Beverly D'Angelo started her career as a, not just a stage actress, but particularly as a musical actress, famous for being in hair. So she like yeah. has those chops. Tell me, everybody, have you heard? Have you heard? He's gonna buy He's gonna me buy a mockingbird. A mockingbird. And if that if mockingbird that don't sing, don't sing. He's gonna what I loved about that scene is it's, I guess, the difference between looking at it from the kid's point of view versus mm-hmm. the adult's point of view. It's like, they sound really good. And yet, to hear them sing it, the kids in the back are just like, you guys You guys, please. Because that's, that's the point of view. If they actually were singing badly, mm-hmm. it would not be as funny. Totally. But they are enjoying themselves. And I think as somebody put when describing the character in one of the things that I read, you know, here's this guy who's probably not a great dad in the sense that he doesn't see his kids like ever. He's got his two weeks of vacation yes. and he's going to make the most. Of- and so the amount of joy and like freedom yes. that he is trying to cram in there, like to me, that that's... That's what that singing was about, of finally getting a chance to not only be with his kids, but also be with his wife and let down his his mm-hmm. hair, such as it is. It made me think the way we take vacations now as families is so different from the 80s when you really did pile into a car and go places. Yeah. Air travel's become much more something everyone did. Even the 80s, it was, I can't remember getting on a plane to go on vacations that much. Even when I went and spent summers with my dad somewhere, it was a driving thing. So it is the end of that kind of era too of everyone being in the car together, which just sounds like a nightmare already. Yeah. <laughs> if you have more than one child in a car traveling for more than 45 minutes, it's a nightmare. When he's talking to Roy Wally in the end and they're talking about going on road trips and sort of reminiscing across generations, and I think they even mentioned like, oh, and it smells and everybody's back there. Chevy's like, I know that smell. (laughs) Bullcast and Crew was brought to you by Two Different Guys on a Bench, a new comedy series from American Vandal star Ryan O'Flanagan. Two Different Guys on a Bench, where Ryan talks to Ryan on a bench. We keep the comedy simple, folks. Two different guys on a bench videos can be found now on Facebook at Chuckler Comedy. Like and follow Chuckler for the latest and greatest short form comedy videos. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. Great story about Roy Wally. The guy who plays him. Eddie Bracken. Eddie Bracken, who was a great comedic actor of the 1940s, I guess. Yes. And they couldn't find anyone who looked convincingly enough like Walt Disney, which is who was referenced in the original story that John Hughes wrote. And of course, they needed to change it because Walt Disney World famously, Chris, never closes. Right. So (laughs) plot device. And also, there's no way they're going to be able to film yeah, it I think Disney. That's probably has more to do with it. There's just two very good reasons. So they found Eddie Bracken, who I think was doing dinner theater in New Jersey. Yes. <laughs> he was born in 1915. So in 19, what is it, 83? 83, yeah. So he's almost- Almost 70. Almost 70. That's Which not actually, too bad. It doesn't sound as, that's not as crazy too bad. today. Yeah, he's doing dinner theater in Montclair, New Jersey. And he looked amazingly like Walt Disney. Right. I think in the uh, picture for the dinner theater, he had a little mustache. Yellow mustache. And they were like, there he is. That scene and that ending, I hadn't realized that there was the original ending that yeah. they even filmed and that they tested and I think is probably uh, on the DVD. It's on, whatever. yeah. You can watch it. That was fascinating to read just how different it was. And especially because how it's this pretty good ending- save. 
It's a great to save. To go like, in and figure out how to do that quickly. But, you know, it was interesting to hear Harold Ramis talk about it because, like, it mm-hmm. makes sense in the, sure. the, the story. When you're doing it, that way. Like, of course it's going to yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, but oh. then. Can you imagine to, the horror of the screening when you realize, holy shit, this does not work. Yeah, as the, and the way he put it, it's like, doesn't work. they were laughing for 80 minutes and then Silence. granite, then nothing. Oh. But then, you know, it, but it I guess horrible. by seeing it and having a good, yeah. you know, a great comedic mind, you realize what is it that we're missing? And actually he's pretty articulate in that yeah. do- documentary of, of the payoff of getting to Wally World yes. has to be there somehow. Totally, totally. Uh, and, and it makes perfect sense. I, I also was struck by a thing that Harold Ramis, the late Harold Ramis said that I thought was so smart. He said, another director told him, the only time you're making the movie worse as a director is during the filming of the movie. <laughs> because when you're working on the screenplay, what are you doing? You're making it better. Yeah. You know, Chris, what do you think about this scene? What well, you can do better? You're, you're, you're plussing it out. When you're in the edit, you're taking what you have and you're making it work, making it better. Right. The only time you're making the movie worse is when you're actually shooting it, which is both the greatest and like the most horrifyingly true advice yeah. probably for anybody who's ever been on any kind of a set. Yes. So... Uh, yeah, I think that the save on the ending was great. It works great. And I also think the tone of the movie is such a save for the movie because it's pitched not in realism. This is sort of heightened, and everyone yeah. is kind of in a special place that exists only in the movie. It's almost stagey. For example, crushing the car on the lot at the time. Yes. That's not naturalistic, but it is kind of realistic because you feel he's pressured, he can't yes. back out, making it external, yes. or rather making it objective in the sense of like, now the car is flattened. That's, you know, sort of mm-hmm. giving it a reason. And, you know, they talk about Harold Ramis as well as, I think it was the associate producer, yeah. when talking about their scene in East St. Louis and how they look back on it and kind of cringe. Let's play that scene because I thought that was interesting. There's the one thing Harold Ramis said, you know, if I was doing it again, I wouldn't put that scene in the movie. Yeah. However, I think it works perfectly because the focus of the send-up is the clueless white people. So, yes, you have stereotypes that are used to deliver that, but the joke is always on the Griswold. Yeah, I mean, probably with hindsight, he could do it in a way that feels less that it's relying on the stereotype. Here's a little bit of it as they pull into East St. Louis. Clark, what are you doing? Just relax, Ellen. This is so dangerous. We have no business being in an area like this. Well, look at it this way, honey. This is a part of America we never get to see. (laughs) That's good. No, that's bad. I mean, uh, we can't close our eyes to the plight of the cities. Kids, you noticing all this plight? This will just uh, make us appreciate what we have. Roll them up. Well, I better ask these fellows how to get back on the expressway. Pardon me. Uh, I wonder if you could tell me how to get back on the expressway. Hey, fuck your mama. Thank you very much. The writing is sharp. It's yeah. funny. I know it's it's a scene from a movie that exists in 1983. Yeah. And Harold Ramis says, you know, that's probably the one scene he wouldn't include in the film today. It's so much in the consciousness. It's such a pop culture classic. It has spawned, I was surprised at how many sequels. I, I think too. I've only seen European Vacation. I think I don't think I've seen anything. European. I don't I've, think I've ever watched European Vacation. I never watched Christmas Vacation. I never saw the Christmas. What else that, is there? Vegas Vacation. I was vacation. surprised at how many people like the Christmas one. The fact that the Vegas one existed, that there was, I guess, a straight-to-video sequel with 
Randy Quaid, I think. Really? It's like a spinoff that is considered part of the thing. It's nice to visit non-crazy Randy Quaid in the movies. (laughs) I'll tell you, that Randy Quaid, he sounds like a real handful. What's the doc called? Starkillers? He and his wife have a conspiracy theory that there is a cabal that exists to target Hollywood celebrities and portray them as insane in order to discredit their activist work. Huh. And I think they've made a documentary that lays all this out in excruciating detail. Uh, they'll also well, be, next week we will be covering. They'll also be appearing at the Area 51, 500,000 people show up. Oh, nice. It's oh. being organized on social media. Oh, good. Maybe I can get a ride from them. Uh. <laughs> the whole Randy Quaid visiting scene is fucking brilliant. Yeah. Jane Krakowski, which Jane I had Krakowski, to be reminded. Film debut. I didn't realize that until reading about this. Uh, um, she's fantastic. She's so funny. Stirring the Kool-Aid with her hand. I mean, we have to play her iconic line. It's just one of the greatest. So this is Audrey meeting her cousin. I'm going steady. And I French kiss. So everybody does that. Yeah, but Daddy says I'm the best at it. That is, that is just still. Uh, little. It's a little more tart. Now, host Jeffrey Epstein. Casting director did a phenomenal job finding these kids. And, and even that weird kid who plays her brother. Her brother. Who is that, that kid? I remember him from 80s John movies. John P. Navin Jr. John P. Navin Jr. What else was he in? He I has such a recognizable kid. face. Yes. And how was he in? Taps, I think, is the biggest thing. But then Silver Spoons, Facts of Life. Oh, well, I think I remember give me a break. That. All of which from I'm sure stuff. I remember. His last credit is from 1993. Where's he been since 1993? Yeah, just... Just doing his thing, chilling. (laughs) He might have gotten himself a real job. And he wasn't in the making of Doc, was he? No. Hmm. He was actually the first patron on Cheers. (laughs) He actually utters the first line of the show in episode one. Oh, wow. How about a beer, Chief? He comes into the bar with a fake ID and is turned down by Sam, then attempts to get Sumner and Diane to buy him one. I also remember him as Ox on Silver Spoons. Oh, that's... He was always kind of that wise Alec, smart-talking kid. Yeah, because he's got... There's something about his face that looks yes. a little bit tough. Yeah. And I think uh, that's and he was why also, he's such a good child actor, because even as a kid, there's that disconnect between being a kid and also looking kind of kind of tough. He's a that kid. Yeah. From the era. There were f- things in this movie that I forgot and how funny they were. Such as? Such as I had forgotten completely about all the desert stuff. After they run off the road. First of all, the speech he gives Rusty. You talking about when they're having the man-to-man before he sets off? Perfect for Chevy Chase. (sighs) You know what I want to do? When I was your age, my dad shared a beer with me, and I thought it was about the best thing in the world. As a boy, just about every summer we'd take a vacation. And you know, in 18 years, we never had fun. But now I have my own family, and well, we're on our own vacation. And you know something, Russ? What that? We're gonna have fun. <laughs> we're gonna have fun. Hey. Don't let your mother smell that beer in your breath. She'll take it out on me. Yeah. Well, I better get a move on if I want to get us out of here by dark. Right. Good talk, son. Talk, Dad. 
the earnestness of the writing, but you could tell there's a little bit some behind that he's doing. The physical thing of his glasses being broken, falling off while he's trying to have this moment. And letting Rusty's visual comedy take precedence over the monologue Chevy is giving. It actually helped keep him in a place where we can appreciate him as opposed to overwhelming the scene. Yes. Because the funny visual thing is that Rusty's killing an entire beer. Because yeah. I think for what we know, there could be some like, hey, uh, I don't want that going on during my speech. Yeah. And in that scene, I had forgotten how genius the montage of Chevy stumbling through the <laughs> desert was. I'm sure in the screenplay, it's like three shot montage as Chevy makes his way through an increasingly parched desert. Yeah. And loses more and more of his clothing. But the physical stumbling, the mumbling, the things that he's saying is so fucking brilliant. Yeah. The Lawrence of Arabia homage shot as he crests over the sand dune. Yeah. And then his voice at the gas station when he's reunited. He's like, hey, hey, kids, you thirsty? Yeah, you are too. You said it. Of course, Christy Brinkley, we have to mention that. I mean, I think they handle it well in that the few lines that she does have, they make it work. It would have been maybe a little bit purer and better to just keep her the MacGuffin. You kind of see her visually, but you don't really have a scene where she and Clark almost get together in the pool. Right. Given the limitations of the actor, it's a little jarring, even the few lines that she has. I read that at one point, I don't think they shot it, but when they were doing the script with something like the original ending, Mm -hmm. when they get to Wally's house, that she shows up. Really? And it turns out that she is the daughter of Roy Wally. Oh, come on. And- convinces him to drop the charges. I don't know if that was just in the script stage. And they they sort of realized, yes, that that would have been a little bit too contrived. Mm -hmm. But um, I agree with you that, you know, she's not great. And there was part of me that was like this sort of flirtation with excitement versus domesticity Mm -hmm. seemed a little bit tired. But another thing that I'd forgotten was afterwards when he and Ellen get together and they're talking and they go and they go skinny dipping together and wake everybody up. I thought that was really sweet and well-written. And Chevy's face when he's telling her to be able to hold the contradictory thing in his face while he's trying to reassure her. Yeah. Why would I be attracted to that incredibly hot famous model in a red Italian sports car. He can do that. He's both genuine and lying at the same time. Um, Here's a little of Christie's scene with him at the pool, which again, she quits herself well. Sure. First ever appearance in a movie, not an actor, the most famous model in the world at the time. Yeah, my credo is, you have to have a credo. You know, go for it pretty much. You only go around this crazy merry-go-round once, you know? I agree. Yeah. Yeah, that's my credo. You don't have to have a credo, but bird fits where it. Penny saved, Penny's uh, from heaven. My favorite credo. Uh. <laughs> um. You know, Penny saved and thank you. This feels great. Well, are you gonna go for it? Uh, here? For starters, sure. Why not? And the Academy Award goes to... I also didn't really think about it until watching the making of that they really took this trip. They had to drive 2,500 miles and have 12 
trucks and 100 people moving across the country in order to do the stuff they needed to do. One of the, I, I can't remember uh, if it was, I think it was the first AD who was saying like that actually shooting on location is mm-hmm. much more common now. Yeah. And for a relatively low budget film yes. like that, it was a little bit, it was a little bit, what's the word? Is it that it was exciting or that it was just- Impossible. Um, impossible and difficult. And the studio didn't expect it. Yeah. Well, he also says like, imagine no email. No yeah. cell phones, not even any satellite phones. How do you coordinate? So yeah. you, how do you coordinate all this shit? It's like, yeah, okay, we're going to be there on Tuesday. And it's like, you better hope that everything is going when yeah. you show up. Well, that's a, a transition with that is, uh, you know, who else uh, didn't necessarily love all that and who we haven't talked about nearly as much as she deserves is uh, Imogene Coca. Imogene Coca. Wow. Talk about a pro's pro. That's an actor, someone who was fucking miserable for the entire shoot, who's as funny as she is in the movie. She didn't she, like traveling. She didn't like traveling. She didn't like being in cars. She had, right. She <laughs> And her agent, she was like, I don't want to do this because I don't want to be mean. Yeah. And her agent's like, no, no, no. And she's like, oh, and she, yes, she had been in a car accident. Yeah, horrible so car accident. she was deathly afraid of driving. And her agents were like, no, no, no. They're just going to do it on the back Agents, lot. man. Yeah. They're just going to do it on the back. It's not, we're don't driving. Worry about it. Who's going to take this actual road trip? Which is, of course, what they do. And she not only sticks it out, she is fantastic. She is amazing. <laughs> And I think it's Jane Krakowski talking with awe because at first, you know, they mm-hmm. meet her and she seems a little bit on the old yes. side. Maybe is she going to be afraid of that? And then like as soon as they yell action, she bursts out and is amazing. It's her scene coming out of Randy Quaid's farmhouse and it's her introduction and she has a walker. <laughs> she was not happy. She did not like being in the vehicles. Played up a little bit, maybe that frail thing. Sure. And then Hamily hits the mark, <laughs> doing physical stuff with the walker. The great facial, I mean, what a great rubber-faced comic she was. And also, in a sweet way, I think this is one of the things that I liked about films of this era, and Harold Ramis talks about this. For him, Imogene Coca meant a lot as a kid growing up watching your show of shows and Sid Caesar and appreciating the level of comedy on that show, appreciating her, and then being able to put her in a movie. Same thing with uh, the Roy Wally actor, you know, sort of that, that connection to old and the new Hollywood that we're kind of getting into here. Another comparison with Greece. Another I remember comparison we were talking with about Greece. that again when you have uh, totally. producers or whatever who wasn't Sid Caesar. In, Sid Caesar was in Greece. Yes, yes, yes. He was the gym teacher. Yeah, Coach totally. Calhoun. Coach Calhoun. This is another just the dog scene tied to the car. Uh, James Keach, brother of Stacy, delivering an incredible cameo performance yeah. as the motorcycle cop. Hello, officer. What's the problem? Get out of the car. I don't think I was speeding. Was I weaving or something? Shut your mouth, sir. You know, if I wasn't in uniform, I'd split your skull with the butt of this revolver faster than you could say police brutality. Well, officer, whatever it is I've done, I'm sure I can explain. Explain this, you son of a bitch. Oh, my God. You know what the penalty for animal cruelty is in this state? No, sir, I don't. Well, it's probably pretty stiff. Oh, you can't think I'd do this on purpose, sir. I Look, I, I tied him to the rear bumper when I was packing the car. I, uh, it was very confusing. I must have forgot. I, I'm very sorry. I feel terrible. How do you think that little dog feels? Look, 
I told you I was sorry. It really was an accident. Yeah. Well, I guess I can buy that, sir. But it is a shame. I had a pooch like this when, when I was a kid. Poor little guy. Probably kept up with you for a mile or so. Tough little mutt. Yeah. I was afraid you'd get pulled over, Clark. You've been exceeding the speed limit for thousands of miles. Dad wasn't speeding. The cops stopped us because Dad forgot to... He was speeding, Rusty. No, he wasn't, Mom. Russ, listen to your mother. I was speeding. I was driving like a maniac. We can all be grateful to this man for stopping us. You see kids a car... Here's the lease, sir. I'm going back to get the rest of the carcass off the road. Thank you, officer. James Keach, the line where his performance takes the turn from hard-ass motorcycle cop to weirdo is so fucking brilliant. That is genius. Yeah about the penalty in the state. It's probably, probably pretty severe. <laughs> like, that's the turn? How genius is that? Yeah. As oh, a turn? This is the, I oh guess, my God. the I flames scene for this movie. In a movie that's full of, like, full quotable of yes. stuff. But in reading different reminiscences about oh this scene God. specifically, they would talk about how much both of them would were laughing. Up. And you they also seem to imply that a certain amount of it was improvised, though I don't know <laughs> how much that line, which is so brilliant, was that written or was that... Was that him uh, thinking of it on the spot? It sounds like the way the process worked was, you can imagine with actors of this caliber, so much of what Chevy is doing is unquantifiable. It's hard to even discuss it because it's so visual. You have to watch the scene to appreciate when James Keach is having dialogue. Chevy is running through. He's so thrilled this horrible dog is out of their lives. <laughs> He's faking humility and sadness over what has happened. He's trying to get out of this police encounter. It's like so many things just go on in his face. But James Keach, it's dumb to talk this seriously about how impressed I am in the acting of National Lampoon's Vacation. But I mean, even just the way he leans into the window and flicks off his sunglasses yeah. is so expertly done. And they're having so much fun underneath what's going on in the scene, which doesn't break. It's brilliant. And like you said, there's a hundred moments like that in the movie. Yeah. Another thing that I had forgotten about, which ties it up from being just sort of a series of sketches mm -hmm. into something a little bit more. Yes. Again, I don't want to, but his breakdown eventually. Yes. Uh, you know, when they're just dropped, when they've just dropped off, spoiler for 1983's yes. vacation, the corpse of Aunt Edna <laughs> on, uh, <laughs> <laughs> on somebody's porch. That is great. This to me seemed so right for this. It's both a satire mm -hmm. of the American consumerism yes. and, and American suburban stuff, but also you have sympathy for this dullard because as he said, it's, it's no longer about fun. It's a quest or whatever he, he uses. Like, But also we would all do that. Given the chance, totally. we would also leave the old crone on the brother-in-law's porch yes. and get the hell on with our vacation. We'll have to play a little of this great unedited rant because it's so good. Yeah. This is where he loses his shit. It's been one disaster after another. Yeah, it's been a real drag, Dad. Maybe we can try it some other time. Wally World's overrated anyway. What do you think? I think you're all fucked in the head. We're 10 hours from the fucking fun park and you want to bail out. Well, I'll tell you something. This is no longer a vacation. It's a quest. It's a quest for fun. I'm gonna have fun, and you're gonna have fun. We're all gonna have so much fucking fun we'll need plastic surgery to remove our goddamn smiles. You'll be whistling symphony doodah out of your assholes. 
I gotta be crazy. I'm on a pilgrimage to see a moose. Praise Marty Moose. Holy shit. Dad, you wanna ask for something? Don't touch. <laughs> if you've ever organized travel for your family as I do, the look on his face as they are all the complaints start yeah. to pile on. The look on his face is so absolutely perfect. We have all been there. We have all logged hundreds of hours making sure plane reservations, hotel rooms, itineraries. We're going to go here. Now we're going to do here. Right. You got to make some choices. Make Otherwise, choices. nobody wants to be involved in the unfun planning part. Everyone wants to have an opinion once it's all on the road and going to shit. That is what is so genius about that. And I don't think there's really any profanity in the film up until that point. And Beverly Giangelo's reaction shot is so perfect as he starts losing it. Yeah. I don't think we've talked enough about her. They said it was hard to cast because they needed someone who was kind of hot and sexy. They didn't just want like a June Allison suburban mom. Apologies to June Allison's <laughs> living relatives. <laughs> I'm sure she was hot and sexy from underneath all that gingham and skirting and all that stuff. Someone for everyone. And, then, and she also needed to be smarter than Clark and play that way with Chevy, which is hard she to do. She also plays it in a way of, there's the scene where they're overlooking the Grand Canyon and he <laughs> says, I'm like, this is fun, isn't it? And she nods and smiles, but then says, no. <laughs> and so really it's not good. just to be smarter, but there's also got to be a sense of like a partnership that has its own rules, whatever they are. Yeah. She stands up for him with Aunt Edna yes. when they're at Randy Quaid's house. Yes. And you know what's funny? Because I think this idea of the mom with the the bumbling dad mm. by now is such a is this where that became the sitcom trope? Oh no, I think that's been going think, on in entertainment for hundreds of years. Yeah. So okay, so this is just sort of like a particularly I just good think expression of it. I think what we're talking around is that in order to make really great comedy, when you pay attention to all this other stuff. You can imagine it's probably silly and probably a lot of fun, but basically silly to sit around and talk about the verisimilitude of Sorry, this, I'm not familiar the with scene that. in the car or all these kind of what their relationship is and how they're with each other. But in doing that, you get some place that's very specific. Specificity that's so effortless seeming allows the POV of the writing and the performances to perch on something. With comedy, that's the stuff I guess most people forget to pay attention to or don't think to pay attention to or think because it's comedy, they don't have they to don't pay have Exactly. When you're doing a drama, let's let's like crawl up each other's ass and talk about what's going on in your motivation and my motivation and all this stuff because we're having this dramatic tense scene. And but there's plenty all this of out. ass crawling in this movie too. <laughs> also, the Vista scenes are truly breathtaking. I read somewhere he was like influenced by some, it wasn't Koyana Scotsy, but it was like whatever else was out at that time that we all went and saw in like 82, 83. Um, <clears throat> it was like another one of those the brilliant abundance of and fantastic imagery of nature. Uh -huh. It's like a Jean-Jacques Arnaud film. Ooh. Right now, 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 now I'm, I'm interested. You know Jean-Jacques Arnaud, director of In the Name of the Rose? Yes. But Quest for Fire. He had just seen, have you seen Quest for Fire? Another one about cavemen? Prehistoric time when three tribesmen search for a oh, new I fire source. Oh, I thought Harold Ramis was influenced with Quest for Fire when he did year one. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What's your audience for a year one joke, do you think? Harold how, Ramis. How big is the audience? Yeah, is Daryl laughing somewhere? I hope so, but it would be more of an at than a with. Well, Quest for Fire 1981 had these panoramic scenery shots, and Harold Ramis was like, we need some of that. We're going to be in the Grand Canyon. We're going to have vistas. And also, I'd forgotten the intro of the movie, the title sequence with all of the things that you were satirizing in your open, that he had found America's foremost 
collector of road trip ephemera uh-huh. photographs and consulted with that guy who made a selection of what he felt oh, that's great. were the best, most iconic things along the route. And that's what we're seeing in the opening credit sequence. We talked a little bit with Flash Gordon last week, how great that opening sequence was yes. using the comic strips and stuff. Anyone else that we need to discuss? Um, John Candy. Doing a take on uh, his iconic character from SCTV. The things that I thought were particularly interesting was, one, we talked about how that ending was kind of cobbled together really quickly. And that included the fact that they um, had to pay John Candy a million dollars. No, is that true? That's what I read on IMDb. He was paid $1 million for his brief appearance at the end of the movie. That can't be true. Then there was a Wally World water park in London, Ontario, Canada, (laughs) which opened several years after the movie was released. John Candy was invited to the opening of the park, but the park owners couldn't afford his appearance fee. Wow. Um, I didn't read that. A million dollars? That's like Brando-esque. That seems too big for the time. That can't be true. Uh, Who knows? There might have been some of them we had to turn down or, yeah, I buy it. He died at 43. That is That's crazy. so young. He would have done some amazing things. To hear people talk about him in the making of documentary and in the backstage yeah. stuff, just how ironically light on his feet he was oh, and yeah. how good of an actor he was that that made the comedy that much better. Have you seen Planes, Trains, and Automobiles lately? No. Tour de force impressive. You know, we considered doing that. I think that'd be a good one, especially it's, because it's like an I said, it has that sad side and depth. You didn't get to use that much. But I think that the real emotion at the end of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is such a good use of John Candy and such an impressive choice to allow that to go there. Yeah. You know, it goes there that is But you can do that just by cutting to John Candy. That's what's amazing about him as an actor. That's why I think comedic actors can contain so much more depth sometimes because to be a comedian, you have to be in the world in order to observe it. For comedy people, you know, they talk about playing the truth in the scene, the yes. truth in comedy. Like that line, do you know what the laws for animal cruelty are in this Yes. Scene? No, I don't. Well, it's probably pretty stiff. That is not just a clever line, but it comes from the real thing of not every officer is going to know every yes. statute. And yet you've heard that rhetorical question so often that playing it truthfully, you find this great awkwardness of him not knowing, but still wanting to make the point. I do want to mention the theme song, which I spent a lot of time yesterday freaking out about. Yes, Lindsay Buckingham oh from my Queen. Oh, my God. <laughs> from Queen. What? Fleetwood Mac, Chris, you know that. No, Queen. That's what Buckingham Palace. No, no. <laughs> Queen, like Mac. Like, hey, Mac, seen the Queen hey, today, <laughs> have you? Anyway, Holiday Road, two minutes and 11 seconds of bizarre studio Frankenstein musical genius that contains, I believe, only 26 words, including the chorus. Uh, just, I'm going to play a little snippet. That's it. And all of the backing vocals are Lindsey Buckingham. All of the instruments are- It's all him. It's all him. And it's not a great song in a certain sense. But it's catchy as hell. It is an earworm of the highest magnitude. And listening to it outside the context of the movie, it's kind of weird. But my God, like, can't think of the movies without that. And it's a song for a movie. Like, it exists in a cinematic place 
that that's where it belongs. And Lindsey Buckingham is like really never talked much about it. He probably just dashed it off. Like, yeah, okay. Well, a holiday road trip movie? Yeah. Sure. So he wrote three lines. It's practically a jingle. <laughs> I didn't read any alternative casting. Very little. And as often goes, some of these things might have been a fleeting thought. One, Kim Cattrall was, what I read was the original choice for Ellen. Oh, she wouldn't have been old enough then, would she? I think, you know, she would have been- in her late 20s. Which is, I think, also what Beverly D'Angelo was. Did you see, uh, just talking about the production and the casting, how weird is Mark Canton in that documentary? You guys can Google this. Just Google, like, the making of National Lampoon's Vacation. You'll know him when you see him. So then, of course, I go down the Mark Canton thing because I remember kind of in the 80s and 90s. Believe it or not, kids, there was a time when movie studio executives were worthy of celebrity and note. And like you'd read Spy Magazine and there would be takedowns of them. Blows my mind. Mark Canton was one such guy who was famously deposed after a career riddled with some kind of controversial and quirky behavior. Uh and well, there's the answer to your question. I mean, <laughs> So there's a few quick anecdotes here that Peter Bart shared, who's former editor of Variety. And one story goes, a guy in the business was summoned to Mark Canton's office with the director who was in the middle of shooting a picture for Mark Canton. Every minute is literally costing tens, if not hundreds, this is the 80s, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mark Canton is like, he needs to leave the set and come to my office now. Okay. He gets there only to be kept waiting an hour in the reception room. So the director is sitting there He's computing in his head how much this hour is costing. And Mark Canton peeks his head out and just says, matter of factly, I- I'm talking to a real estate agent about my house, then slams the door shut and goes back into his office. <laughs> and then another one is he was meeting with a young up and coming director when he was at Warner Brothers and Canton was eating an apple in the meeting. And he did this thing where he would ask a question of the filmmaker and then take an enormous bite of the apple and the crunching sound of his chewing would drown out the director's answer. And this happened two to three times to people's consternation in the room. And then finally, he concluded the meeting by telling the director, you're really going to have to develop a much louder voice if you want to succeed as a director. I can't hear one word you're saying with apple juice dripping down his throat. <laughs> he had just read The Art of the Deal. I guess so. This is all stuff that he had learned. I'm sorry, Chris, did you it's say all something? about power play. Power play, right? Yeah. A couple possibilities to play Cousin Eddie. Mm, Robin really? Williams. But... Get out of town. Really? You know, he would have been. Well, he guess, would have been too much. Oh, I, well, I was about to say, like. I look at everything with Robin Williams now and I'm going like, it would have been too much. It's amazing he made as many movies as he did. It was never just properly calibrated. Robin Williams and Kenneth Mars. Who's that? He's a character actor. I thought Randy Quaid. He's so perfect for this. There were also people considered for Clark. Oh, really? I saw three names. Who? Richard Belzer. Robert Klein and Bill Murray. I mean, Belzer, so Belzer. Like, you know, it's, I forgot. He was in um, yeah. the National Lampoon stuff. And I guess I can see Robert Klein being an up and coming comedian. Belzer. I guess these are like contingencies, you know. And who was the third one? Bill Murray. Perhaps you've heard of him. Mm. I haven't heard of him. Bill Murray, who you had mentioned the feud. Oh, yeah, the Harold Ramis, Ramis feud. feud uh, which actually sounded very sad. Yeah. They somewhat reconciled just on the verge of Harold Ramis' death. Yes. But he was unable to speak. So Bill Murray- Kind of a power topic. move to go in for your yeah. reconciliation bill. <laughs> oh. I mean, seriously. Like that, that anecdote, the way it was written, and it's, maybe it's uncharitably written against Bill Murray, but it was kind of like, you know, they ran into each other plenty of times. And um, what was it because Harold Ramis threw Bill Murray up against a wall or Bill Murray threw Harold Ramis up against a wall? See, all that I heard, there was no explanation except that Harold Ramis would say, I think it had to do with stuff Bill was going through in his life at the yes. time. 
I read that there was some moment where he threw Bill up against a wall and said, like, listen, motherfucker, or something. And then that was like a 20-year feud. And then, yes, on Harold Ramis' deathbed, unable to speak, Bill Murray shows up with a police escort for comedic effect. And... Sounded like he came in and there was some talking, but... But it was one-sided talking. Maybe a little but, one-sided. But then, uh, you know, Harold Davis was talking also about his own potential problems with Chevy when Chevy threw a suitcase yes. toward him. Yeah, in the garage. I have to admit, I, I almost am on Bill Murray's side just because the way Harold Ramis told that story yeah. made it seem like, come on, man, like be a little... Like mm-hmm. I understand Chevy can be sort of a jerk, but yeah. like this sounded like a... Sort of a reasonable, but you know, again, I wasn't there. So you thought it was so reasonable for Chevy to throw the suitcase. At I the think director? absolutely. That should when a director signs onto a project, they should be a punching bag for their lead person. Well, he was talking about filming in the garage in the great visual scene where the car backs out for the very first moment of the vacation, and all the carefully assembled luggage on the roof rack gets ripped off and falls on the floor. And it was 120 degrees in the garage, and they couldn't get it right. And he's, I would love to interview. I wish I, I wish there someone interviewed. Chevy Chase and really kind of like unpacked to the degree that you could. And I wonder what percent the prickliness is a part of what makes him. And I'm sure that's part of what is going on. But there's a part of me that just, I excuse it in a sense that even in interviews, he seems kind of uncomfortable in sort of an endearing way. He both seems comfortable in his skin and also profoundly uncomfortable in a way that I just find really compelling. That's disarming in a good way. Yeah. You know, that to read some of these things, he might sound like a jerk. But once you see somebody and you can see like, oh, you're obviously uncomfortable. You're obviously Mm -hmm. trying to work against your worst instincts and trying to be a better person than your impulses are. This thing. They were saying it was toward the end of the shoot. It was mm-hmm. a hot, like, 100-degree day, yeah. multiple takes. He had to throw the suitcase somewhere. Mm-hmm. Even Harold Ramis didn't imply that he was throwing it at him to hit him. Right. He was looking for somewhere to throw it. Yeah. He was like, I can't throw it at the camera. I can't throw it at the cinematographer. I can't throw it at that light stand. Oh, Harold. Yeah. So, and I think when somebody, when you're already primed to dislike someone because mm-hmm. maybe he'd been a dick all throughout the thing that you get pissed at them and, and take the moral high ground. We've talked about this before and I think this is apropos with Chevy. When you get really into looking at movies and thinking about them, you realize they're far more complicated and the reasons that they work often are so subtle. You could talk about them forever and ever and ever, right. even though the experience of watching one that really works can feel seamless and easy. Yes. I think with comedy, it's the same thing. What Chevy Chase He was always singular. He was always different. I mean, he was the first star on Saturday Night Live. Right. And I think that's a lonely and specific place to be. No one else can be there with him, really. You can have colleagues and you can have comparable performers, but his thing has always been very specific to him. Yeah. And I wonder if part of that means you've got to defend something. And in defending it, you're going to rub some people the wrong way. Sure. Maybe. He also was in Steely Dan. It was the Leather Canary then. But he played drums uh, with Walter Becker and Donald Fagan prior to them becoming Steely Dan. Wow. Yeah. And a Steely Dan, that's a dildo, right? That is a dildo. Yeah, just want to make sure. Yes. Do you know? That's probably what they always wanted to call it. And it was only when he left, like, finally, that stick in the mud is gone. We can go with our dildo name. Do you know, this is a good trivia question for you, Chris. Do you know which science fiction novel the term Steely Dan was taken from? Uh... Brave New World. Naked Lunch, bro. Oh, really? Willis Burroughs. Ah, nuts. It's a reference to Naked Lunch, Steely Dan 3 from Yokohama is a steam-powered dildo, (laughs) which is, as this person says, it's not really something that comes to mind when listening to Reeling in the Years. Full Cast and Crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind, a new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick 
co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film Space Station 76, and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and Z Nation. Out of Jack's mind, like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. Uh, I don't really have any headlines for you today. I have a couple that are actually Great. appropriate for the film. Headlines. Did you? <laughs> From the Daily Mail, there was a shocking video mm-hmm. of a raft going over falls with, I think, oh, six yes. people in it. It was a pretty big waterfall and pretty scary yeah. looking. Shocking video captured the moment that a group of rafters plunged over a 30-foot waterfall after apparently ignoring warning signs to turn around. Rather like Clark and the gang and the truckster, the rafters at Ohio Pile State Park in Pennsylvania had rented a raft and took an unguided mm. whitewater boating trip on the middle <laughs> Yawaii River. While navigating the river, the group took a wrong turn that set them on a dangerous course. They passed three warning signs urging boaters to turn back with one sign stating waterfall ahead. Everybody was fine, but uh, never taken unguided. And don't ignore the signs. Although you might also make the opposite mistake, like these drivers in Colorado on June 27th, when Google Map told them to take a dirt road and uh, hundreds of drivers got stuck. That that was great. A crash on the road leading to Denver International Airport prompted the app, Google Maps, to take drivers on a detour. But it was too good to be true. The alternate route took drivers down a dirt road that rain had turned into a muddy mess and cars started sliding around. Some vehicles couldn't make it through the mud and about 100 others became trapped behind them. Connie Monsees was on her way to pick up her husband at the airport when she encountered the wreck on Pena Boulevard. I thought, maybe there's a detour. And pulled it up on Google Maps and it gave me a detour that was half the time, she said. It was 43 minutes initially and this said it was going to be 23 instead. So I took the exit and drove where they told me. There were a bunch of other cars going down the dirt road, too. So I said, I guess it's okay. It was not okay. So basically, we're just enslaved to our devices and we'll do whatever they say. I, I I'm think with it might them. Be, it That's might what be I do. a good idea to look up every now mm-hmm. and again. I do whatever Waze tells me. I don't care. <laughs> There's a reason. I don't need to know. I have faith. Well, Google said in a statement, we take many factors into account when determining driving routes. While we always work to provide the best directions, issues can arise due to unforeseen circumstances such as weather. We encourage all drivers to follow local laws, stay attentive, and use their best judgment while driving. We're not liable, you lemmings. Some of you should pick your asses up from your screen. I've got a story for you. Yes. Um, we, I made fun of you on Facebook about this on our Full Cast and Crew Facebook page. Yes. Uh, the How Millennial Are You Food oh. and Drink thing. Yes. What was your score again? Uh, Do you five. remember? You got a five. Bullshit. What bullshit? You're lying. <laughs> You didn't get a five. And in fact, you I was actually, everything there is a Brodo very close yes. by. And I was thinking of going on lunch just so I could say like, you could now I'm up off. to a six. Okay. But well, I haven't I tried both. So bro. this is a quiz about bizarre foods that millennials consume. And if you have- Bizarre eaten, foods like seltzer water. If you've eaten one through five of them, you're canceled. If you have six to 10, you're basic. If you have 11 to 15, yes, queen, almost millennial. And 16 plus millennial goals AF. Now, Chris, you claim that you only scored a five. Yeah. Okay. I think we all know what avocado toast is. We know what poke is. We know what oat milk and rosé and bone broth. We know the impossible burger, almond butter. Some of these I don't know. Do you know what black ice cream is? No. Do you know what cloud no. eggs are? I think cloud egg is like a, a like a liquid dessert 
from Japan. I think I, I think I saw an article about it no, at one point. No, 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 they're eggs. Oh, actual eggs. <laughs> Fun and trendy eggs are the new craze on Instagram. See, they're also known as fried eggs, millennials. <laughs> I wonder what the thing that that's I'm a fried egg. Is. I posted a thing the other day on my personal Facebook page where I saw an ad on Facebook where it was like, tired of sweat dripping in your face? Wouldn't it be incredible if some garment existed that could tie your hair back and prevent it? I was like, it's a bandana. You guys didn't invent this. What's mermaid toast? Uh, that sounds not appetizing. I'm still looking at black ice cream. Oh, this is mermaid toast. So um, rainbow toast with sprinkles on it, I guess. That's a thing they eat. I'm just surprised, Chris. You strike me as a bulletproof coffee type guy. What is bulletproof coffee? That's the coffee with the butter in it. I once had tea with butter. Because I went to a same t- thing. I went to a Tibetan restaurant. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, hot buttered tea, and uh, it was gross. Mm, well, uh, but I guess if I was planning on climbing a mountain before or after, maybe it would have. What's uh, overnight sat oats? This know. is again going to be like black ice cream is activated charcoal. Ew! In the ice cream? No, really? <laughs> yeah, that's disgusting. I do have I a body wash teeth. that uses charcoal in it, activated charcoal. Do you sing in your shower while you're coating yourself in your black sometimes, charcoal body sometimes. wash? <laughs> Only metal though. Uh, activated charcoal is thought to be healthy for its cleansing and teeth white. Oh, that's right. And I've also used charcoal uh, to brush your teeth. Not like a piece of charcoal, <laughs> but toothpaste with charcoal in it. Okay. Um, <laughs> sorry. Just activated charcoal is thought to be healthy for its cleansing and teeth whitening benefits. No studies have found this to be true. <laughs> Love it. That sounds millennial to me. All right, Chris, let's wrap up by moving yes. straight to Latchkey TV. Hello? So I'm going to say that I'm home from school. It's 3 p.m. And funny enough, on this day in 1985, Chris, there's a show with my name in it. No kidding. A version of my name. Jace, J-A-Y-C. That's a way that I'm often referred to. And I've never seen it. Jace and the Wheeled Warriors is a cartoon on channel. Do you remember when you used to get channel 38B on your Gerald cable box? I only got 38A. Here it is. Jace and the Wheeled Warriors toys. Uh, oh, Jace and his crew drive powerful vehicles to fight against the monster mind, evil plant-based creatures. Ridding us of those evil plants. Kind of an anime. A young man leads a small band in search of his father while fighting the forces of Sawboss using various vehicles. So that's what I'm going to watch because even though I wasn't yet known as Jace, it's yeah. better than watching harness racing <laughs> from Oxen Hill, Maryland. Then at four, I think I mentioned this before, but I'm going Littlest Hobo because I'm kind of interested in blackmailers force a mute girl and her father to conduct fake seances. Then at 4.30, I'm going to watch Dukes of Hazard because there's a fascinating storyline where the boys try to thwart Boss Hogg's implementation of unfair abortion laws. Good for them. Storyline for Dukes of Hazard. I assume Boss Hogg was trying to He was trying to implement. Yeah, he was trying to implement. Uh, unjust, guess, like, an unjust abortion law. And since the Duke boys love them and leave them, they're obviously... <laughs> it's self-interest. A little Duke's self-interest. But sometimes, they're not saints. You know. Sometimes your own self-interest. Absolutely. Yeah, so. Look at history. So remember how the Littlest Hobo was doing the fake seances? Yeah. This must have been a thing in 85 because an episode of Benson, the governor claims he saw Benson beamed aboard a UFO for a short time during their golf game. <laughs> Something going on in the... Like, it was a, a time of great upheaval, just like now. You know, your now, people, millennials, they're yeah. very into astrology. Then at 8 p.m., I'm fascinated by the concept that existed in the 80s of two-part made-for-TV movies mm. featuring storylines that we could easily have handled in one part, <laughs> such as in the conclusion of North Beach in Rawhide, McGregor, 
William Shatner, and his charges host a rodeo at his reformatory ranch. Beverly D'Angelo was in a two-part movie called Double Take, which had a fascinating synopsis that I thought you might enjoy. Okay. Two corpses are found in different locations with their heads severed and exchanged. Frank Janik is called on to head the team of detectives investigating. Meanwhile, Janik is trying to find out why an old friend and colleague committed suicide, which is apparently a different death, (laughs) which eventually leads to a romantic situation with photographer Caroline Wallace and the discovery of some major corruption among his superiors, all of which has little or nothing to do with the murder story. That is just phenomenal. That's, is that available anywhere? <laughs> I don't know. But I came across it and they said it was a two-part thing. And I was like, this seems like one of those. No, no, you need, actually, need, you need two you parts need, for that. Are you kidding? <laughs> you might even need a third. And then because I always like to conclude with one of my favorite things, which are cigarette ads. Yeah. Ooh. Sterling. Reach for the exceptional, Chris. See, that looks sophisticated. This is a guy who is um, hang, hang gliding. gliding off of a mountain. But he's also taking time to enjoy the new soft pack from Sterling. Well, until next week, I hope you're enjoying yourself and savoring your little victories because... This part of my life, this little part, is called happiness. Thanks for listening to Full Cast and Crew. I uh, just wanted to remind everyone to subscribe if you haven't already, so you'll get a new episode every Thursday. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at fullcastandcrew, or find us on Facebook.